Okay. Well, welcome devotees. Um, all of you that have come live to support us in this interview today. Um, today we have a very special devotee. Well, they're all really special devotees, <laughs> but very special to me. I've known Gopal Nandini for quite a long time. Really happy that we finally were able to make this work with her schedule and my, um, I don't know what it was, my forgetfulness to send an email a couple months ago. <laughs> anyway, it's wonderful that we were able to have this interview. And um, we do have to stop a little bit early today. We have to be done by 12.25 because um, Guru Maharaj will be giving a class at 12.30 um, Eastern Standard Time. So um, I'm going to start by reading Gopal Nandini's um, little bio here, and then we'll launch into the interview. Um, Gopal Nandini was born and raised in a small Midwestern town in a large, devout Catholic extended family. She went to multiple colleges and universities, studying photography, design, massage therapy, and finally graduated in 2019 with a degree in family and consumer science education, commonly known as home economics. I'm glad, you, I'm glad that you explained that. <laughs> she has worked in education for the past six years. She met her husband, Krishna Chaitanya, at New Goloka in, New, in North Carolina in 2001, and they were married three months later. They have three great kids, Tilak, 23, Abhiram, 19, and Abhi, it's, <laughs> I didn't know that she had Avani Sutta. I didn't know she had a Sutta at the end of her name. And she's 13, they have a cat, a dog, and 11 cows. And recently we were, blessed, we were blessed with their dream farm in the North Carolina countryside near Saxapalha. They have also lived in New Taliban, Prabhupada village where they had the good fortune of meeting their Guru Maharaj, Tripurari Swami roughly 18 years ago. Gopal Nandini's service has mostly consisted of Goseva, farming and parenting, and she loves hosting the devotees and her teachers in their home. She is inspired by chanting and hearing with her close-knit community who make her want to be a better sadhaka with their honest and loving encouragement and support. By the steadiness and devotion of Krishna Chaitanya, who has patiently explained bhakti to her in a way that she could digest for decades, and by listening to the classes of our Guru Maharaj of Manavaswami and our God sibling, siblings who share so generously their realizations, she is constantly bewildered by the amount of mercy, good fortune, and amazing association she has received in her life. Gopal's other passions is her seamstress work with paper hand puppet inter, uh, intervention, a macro puppet company focused on changing people's heart through art. She also loves creating anything with fiber, hiking, watching the sky, looking at art and being silly with her family and friends. <laughs> so yes, I know Gopanandini has been a very joyful, silly girl sometimes. <laughs> and I say girl because when I first met her, she was just a girl. <laughs> so to have always kept that, that vision. <laughs> so I'd like to start with asking you, you know, what was it that called you into bhakti? What was it that captured your heart to take to this path? Well, I, um, as it said in my bio, I was raised Catholic and, um, we, we were at the church every Sunday, unless, um, we were dying 
or in the hospital. Um, my parents used to show up to summer camp to take me to church. And when we traveled, we went to church. Um, I've been to mass in so many different places, um, sometimes in different languages, because that was all that was available where we were on that weekend. Um, so that was kind of where I started. And I always liked church and I loved singing. I loved all the songs. Um, and I, you know, as I grew up, there wasn't anything that I disagreed with um, as far as Catholicism was concerned, but um, it didn't really, it didn't really answer all of my, all of my questions. Um, and so when I was, when I was 18, I guess, I kind of, you know, I went off to college and as young people might do, I started experimenting with psychedelics. And that really kind of, I don't know, I guess opened my mind to different possibilities and really set me on um, a path of kind of like looking for the, um, the good answers in the world and avoiding what I perceive to be kind of the, 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 the bad, the negative things in life. Um, so from there, I just, you know, I started reading and I, I would run into devotees here and there and I would try to read Prabhupada's books and they, I couldn't make any sense of them. Um, I'm not a, an especially academic or intellectual person. I prefer math to philosophy or English or history. So it was, it was difficult for me to kind of digest those, but they spoke to me um, in a way that all the other seeking I had done and searching I had done did not would like answer one question, but not these other three, or it answered these three questions, but not these other four. And those books, I always kept them around because they were about um, reincarnation. My mother always believed in reincarnation, even though she was Catholic. So that was something I was always raised with. And um, I kind of had an understanding of karma because um, we also were raised being talked to a lot about our guardian angels. And sometimes if something bad happened to you, it was your guardian angels. Um, kind of, you know, teaching you a lesson about bad things you'd done. But sometimes your guardian angels did good things and they kept you safe. And it was, it was like very, it was very karma-like. So all of these things felt really true to me. Um, not eating animals felt true to me. That So like all of these things that I kind of felt were these deep truths. Um, Prabhupada's books kind of talked about all of those things. So while I couldn't digest them, I knew they had something to do with those truths that I felt, you know, truest in my heart. Um, so I always hauled them around with me every, everywhere I went, I, I kept them. So um, when I was 20, I lived in Dallas and um, my best friend, Destiny, we lived there together. Some of you may have even met her. And one Sunday she said, we're going to go to the Hare Krishna temple. They have a, a free vegetarian feast there. And we were all vegetarian. And so um, I don't know if any of you have ever been to the Dallas temple, but to go to the Sunday feast, it's in a completely different building than the, than the temple room. So um, we, we never went to the temple room. We just went straight to this building where there was Prashadam. And it was so overwhelming. The smell was like, you know, I just couldn't hardly take it all in. It was like a full body experience, the smells of the temple and the prashada. So we ate there. And um, the next Sunday, I was like, I'm not sure. Like, this, it was so overwhelming. I'm not sure I can handle it. And Destiny said, Well, you have to go because this food is not just for our bodies this food feeds our souls and 
our souls need all the help we can get. So I agreed to go back because there was this wonderful halibut. Um, I'm one of those. <laughs> I kept coming back for the halibut. The halibut tasted like cherry chocolate brownies. So I was like, okay, you can drag me back. So we kept eating prashad in there, um, you know, a, several times over some months, probably we would go, but still I never went into the temple. Um, then let's see, we moved to California and I never went to the temple there, but actually we ran into someone one time on the street and he asked us, do I know, do I know you two from somewhere? And we were like, ah. I don't know, maybe. And he said, have I seen you at the Hare Krishna temple? And we were like confused. We were like, at the Hare Krishna temple in Dallas? He said, no, the, the one here in San Diego. We were like, no, like this is weird. He thinks he's seen us at the temple there, but you know, we'd only ever been to the temple in Dallas. So, you know, all the time there was like, I, I was always into music and going to concerts and I would always see devotees in all of these places. And so, you know, I'd like always just picked up these little tiny bits, but I'm a really, I'm a really slow learner. So um, anyway, while I was in California, my dad got sick and um, was going to die. So I moved home and um, stayed with my, my mother. And um, my dad was a very, I would say doting father, like, I know that he thought that I was amazing. That's just kind of the person that he was um, and was always very supportive and very protective and, you know, always kind of made me feel like no matter what happened in the world, he would take care of me. So <clears throat> it was just before my 22nd birthday that he died. And that left me feeling really kind of afloat in the world. My mother is a, is a much more kind of independent um, school of hard knocks you know, like when my dad died, she told my brother and I, if you get in trouble, don't call me. Like that was your dad <laughs> and he's gone. So if you get in, in trouble, you're going to have to get yourselves out of it. So I felt really kind of this like untethered, you know, feeling in the world and very unprotected and very safe. So unsafe. So as a um, barely 22 year old, maybe in that situation would do, I latched onto the first seemingly secure man I could find. Um, he was older than me. He owned the restaurant that I was working in. And um, so we, we started dating and I got pregnant and we got married all very hurriedly. And um, come to find out though, he was not, he was not any sort of, sort of security <laughs> at all. <laughs> he was like having a giant, um, a giant out of control child. So um, on my first, my first anniversary, um, Tilak and I left. Tilak was just five months old. So just before, um, and one of kind of the the kind of struggles we had was my kind of my um, my desire to have a more spiritual life, especially bringing a child into the world. Um, you know, I'd always kind of been like, oh, that's neat, but that's like over there for people that are adults and serious about something. I, you know, I thought it was cool and I believed in all of it, but I wasn't, you know, about to take up some sort of serious spiritual practice. But um, having T-Lock really you know, snapped my priorities into focus. I was like, I'm now responsible for the life of another person. And um, I did not want him growing up in a, you know, like redneck, misogynistic, um, you know, drinking and womanizing and, you know, just a, a really bad environment. Um, so I, I just really, really wanted more for T-Lock. And it it really snapped that spiritual um, focus in really into frame for me. So um, just before T-Lock was born, my brother was in New Orleans at the jazz festival. He was kind of at the time, basically trying to emulate the life of Jesus and um, live like Jesus said to live. 
So um, he, he had a motorcycle and he went all over the United States on his motorcycle. And he ended up at the jazz festival in New Orleans and he met devotees there. In fact, I, I think he might've met Maha Mantra and Subal there. And um, so he, he met them and he, he went to the temple and was eating prasadam and, you know, was immediately like, you know, went to the temple room and just felt like he was at home. And so he had been talking to me about this, you know, while I was pregnant with T-Lock and um, around the time that I had him. And then after I had T-Lock, he moved to the temple in, in, um, in Hillsboro to Nugaloka to be a to be a brahmachari there. So, um, you know, it was like kind of in all of my seeking, I hadn't really considered bhakti as an option. I think just because I didn't quite, you know, I hadn't really met anyone to explain it to me. I just had these books and the little bits that I picked up along the way. So as my brother kind of started explaining it to me, it was like a big light bulb. I was like, wow, it's been here all along. And I just didn't like I guess I just didn't have the impetus to grab onto it um, until I had T-Lock. So, so anyway, when T-Lock was five months old, um, I left his dad and um, it took us a really long time to get divorced. So I was living with my mother. I was chanting and going to massage school and offering our food and, um, you know, listening to bhajans and kirtans and sometimes classes. And I visited Nugaloka and, um, what really just drew me in was this, you know, this community um, of young people, Mahamantra and Subal lived there at the time and my brother and Mandakini and just like all of these lovely young people who were like super cool people, but also like had this, you know, spiritual focus and there were children for T-Lock to play with and you know, I was just coming from this like small Midwestern town where just the fact that I was vegetarian was like, you know, you were from another planet. What to speak of, you know, meditating and, you know, all of these like really off the wall things. So it just felt so good to, to be there and have this community of like-minded people. So, I mean, I think basically... <laughs> what brought me to bhakti was Tiwak, you know, and my desire to have some sort of spiritual life for him. Um, we were in Colorado at a wedding just before I moved to, to North Carolina. And I mean, he wasn't exposed to it that much before we moved to Nubaloka, but he was only two and he was sitting on the bed as I packed up our stuff after this wedding. And just out of nowhere, he looked at me and he said, Mama, Krishna is waiting for you. And I just thought, wow, I really, I really need to take this seriously. Like, mm. this is where I'm supposed to be and where I'm supposed to go. So that, yeah. that's really kind of what pushed me there. And then what kept me there was just the association, you know, the friends and the mm. community um, that I could have. Um, for he and for and for myself as well. So out of the mouth of babes. <laughs> yes. So that's yeah. amazing that I never heard that piece of your story that he was, you know, encouraged you like that. That's amazing. Yeah, it, it was weird because it, it was like I say, he wasn't really so, um, you know, I read to him stories about Krishna a little bit, but it wasn't like we, you know, it wasn't like there were any devotees around at my mom's house or, you know, we listened to Kirtan sometimes, but um, yeah, it just seemed really profound to me that he said that. Yeah, definitely inspired from higher sources there. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. So, so beautiful kind of entry into Krishna consciousness, nice community, nice association, children, um, beautiful temple and grounds. It's really quite lovely for idyllic in a lot of ways. So, so that was 
the beginning of Krishna consciousness for you? I mean, you had been introduced to it, but that was the beginning of really serious practice and being a part yes. of the community. So what happened next as far as the challenges that came up in treading the path? And when did they start and how did they start? And um, so late, not, I guess maybe a little less than a year after I moved to Nukaloka, I, um, I met Krishna Chaitanya. He came to visit the temple with Mitra. And um, I was interested in farming. My brother and I both were always interested in farming and cows. We didn't grow up on a farm, but we grew up around a lot of farming, all of our family. A lot of our family were farmers. So um, we were really attracted to that kind of, you know, out in the country lifestyle. And um, so Krishna Chaitanya and I, well, I moved to Nugaloka, uh, not to Nugaloka, I moved to Prabhupada Village with Tilak and my brother um, so that I could um, hang out with Krishna Chaitanya and see if we wanted to get married. So um, we did. We got married pretty quick. And um, and we lived in Prabhupada Village for three, three years, I guess, after we got married, maybe a little longer. I think we lived there until Abby was three. Um, so we had another child right away, Abby Ram. And um, so the, the challenges kind of began um, as, you know, we lived in, in Prabhupada Village and we were surrounded by a lot of Prabhupada disciples. So, I mean, I was quite a new devotee. Krishna Chaitanya wasn't quite as new as me, but we were, we were young. You know, we were the ages of most of the people there had children our age. So um, anybody that knows anything about that community knows there's like, there's always like a lot of turmoil happening there, a lot of different factions and, um, so, so that was really kind of where the, the real thing began because um, lucky for me as a brahmachari, Krishna Chaitanya spent years reading the books and he knows them really well. So um, I'm not a good reader, but I feel like I've read most books because Krishna Chaitanya has like verbalized them to me for so long. So the things that we were hearing and reading and feeling we're not lining up with the way that devotees who had been chanting for 20 and 30 years were acting and it was really confusing because these were Prabhupada disciples mm -hmm. and we were like they're you know they've been doing all the things <laughs> they've been you know following the formula and you know wearing the right clothes and chanting the right number of rounds and going to India for Kartik and like They've been following the formula and they're mean. And, you know, Krishna Chaitanya and I were like, you know, if that's what chanting for 30 years gets you, I'm not really sure that I want to do that. Mm -hmm. So that was like a real struggle, but we would, meet, we would meet devotees who did seem to like get it. As we would all say, they get it. There's like something there that they get, you know, devotees like Mahara and Mitra you and Karnamrita and, you know, just different devotees would meet around and, um, you know, we'd be like, they get it. So here and there, we would like find these devotees that seemed to, to get it. But in between, it was like, you know, this like weird sexism and just like conspiracy theory ideas and Prabhupada said and Prabhupada said and Prabhupada said and we'd be like, I said so many things, but so for years, we were like always looking like for some sort of sangha, some sort of teacher, like, and we moved to New Taliban and um, it wasn't a whole lot different there. And, you know, it was still just a lot of like disappointed with kind of like the hard hearted unkindness of so many devotees. And just feeling like, are we doing something wrong? Is there, you know, am I completely missing the boat? And this like struggle, like I just couldn't, I couldn't do it. I just could not, you know, there was like all of these things I knew it was the only way, but there were all of these things that I just could not 
get into. I just couldn't. Um, and so it was like always this, you know, just that struggle of like, am I doing the right thing? Am I doing the wrong thing? I feel in my heart, it's right over here, but there's all this evidence over here that's like contradictory. So, you know, and it just went on for a long time. And I guess basically in my heart, I sort of had given up. Um, and, you know, I still chanted and I went to the temple and we offered our food, but it was really just kind of like, you know, we would, we would go and we would be so disappointed and we'd be like, we just can't, we can't do it anymore. But then you become lonely and you want association again. And, and we try to go again and we'd be like, oh yeah, this is why, this is why we don't go to the temple. And, you know, so it was just this back and forth and back and forth for, I don't know, years. Um, but during that time, you know, we had devotees that we, that like you and Karnam, we would come to your house and see Guru Maharaj and um, Bhakti and Dulal. They had these programs in Winston that were so lovely and they were nice to the kids. And, you know, it was like, I don't know, it was just like really welcoming. And um, so there, you know, there were devotees around that, um, we would always just like, you know, would kind of like hold us in Mitra Mahara and be like, but they're all right. Like, so, <laughs> you know, what are they doing this different? So, um, we would always go to Guru Maharaj's classes, um, and, and always liked him. Um, and I guess at some point, Krishna Chaitanya, we moved back to Hillsborough. We kind of moved around for a while and ended up back in Hillsborough and um, kind of started having a better time there with um, our family friends like Subal, Mahamantra and Priya and Mudden and, um, you know, just like a, this group of family friends and kids. And so during that time, I guess Guru Maharaj was coming more to Hillsborough and I guess I just had never considered that as a possibility for um, my life. Like I'd taken first initiation years ago from a, from a sannyasi in ISKCON and it was fine. I didn't really have a relationship with him. It wasn't good, it wasn't bad. It was just, you know, whatever, I wasn't inspired. And so I never had really considered that I would go any further in my spiritual life. It just didn't seem like there was any reason. There wasn't any inspiration. There wasn't, you know, why do it? So, um, so we started kind of associating with these devotees more that were hearing from Guru Maharaj, I guess. And so once we went to, um, we went to Priya and Mudden's house and I, and I, you know, I always just felt like I couldn't, I couldn't be myself and be a devotee. Like it just didn't, I was like, I guess I can be like a halfway devotee, but there's like all these parts of me that I feel very strongly about and they are who I am. And I can't just like, you know, it just seemed like there was a lot of living a lie and a lot of like, this is what I look like on the outside, but then I'm doing something else and I'm at my house. And, you know, there's just like all these things going on that felt kind of um, disingenuine. And I, I couldn't remedy those things with this, this mm -hmm. idea that I was seeing, like, you have to do these things to be a devotee, you know, the formula, the little, you know, the formula and the box you have to fit in. And I just, you know, the older I got and the more I knew myself, I was like, I'm not ever going to fit in that box. So I guess I can just like be over here and support Krishna Chaitanya because he's a good devotee and I can just like, you know, be his wife and go on his coattails and someday I'll figure it out. Um, so we went to this class at Madan and Priya's house with Guru Maharaj and he talked about how, um, he talked about how, and I'm sure you've all heard it a hundred times in his classes about people seeing 
Krishna in, in different places and in different ways. And, you know, some people go to the forest and some people go to the ocean and some people, you know, sit silently. And, you know, there's just like all different ways of, of connecting with Krishna as like an individual. And it was really, I mean, I don't know how I didn't get this before, but it was very profound to me because at that moment I realized that I, I could be myself and I could be a devotee. <laughs> like I could do these things over here that I felt like I needed to do. Like I could, couldn't just like falsely renunciate them and I could be a devotee. It just like, it had never been, um, you know, that clear to me before. I thought I was pretty hopeless. So we went home from that class and of course we were like rehashing it and digesting it and Krishna Chaitanya was interpreting and explaining and um, I remember standing in our laundry room and crying and saying I I can listen to music <laughs> music had always been very powerful to me and it still really is like I cannot give up secular music I can't do it it's like and I, and that I hear Krishna there. That's like where I, I hear and I feel divinity. Like, you know, there are certain songs, like just like in a Kirtan, when I hear them, I, you know, I get chills and I, you know, my stomach tingles. And, and that's like where I can feel that kind of divinity is through music. And so that had always been such a struggle for me because I was like, Krishna is giving these people this talent you know, it's, it's all there. Like, why does it, you know? So I remember standing there and crying and saying, I can listen to music and I can still be a devotee, you know? And in the same class, he was also saying, you know, you have to know yourself, you know, where you are, you know, where you're going, you know, you have to figure out how to get there. You know, basically it was the first time I felt like I was responsible for knowing myself and knowing what was good for me and for someone like him to be saying, you know what's good for you. You know your heart, you know your mind, you do what's good for you. You know, I can't really tell you, I can put these things out there, but then you have to navigate the path. And it just like hit me like a ton of bricks. Like I can do this. I don't have to follow someone else's formula. Like. I know myself, I know I want to do this. I know I'm not going anywhere else. I know that Bhakti is the only path for me. And the only way I can do it is by being myself. So, um, so I, I, our conversation went on and I think Krishna Chaitanya maybe suggested, um, you know, have you considered getting second initiation? And, and I hadn't, I hadn't at all. And, but when he said that, I was like, oh yes. And it was exactly like Guru Maharaj says, I said, well, I have to do it before he leaves. Like I, I have to be his and he cannot leave. Like I, it has to happen before he leaves. I, I must, like, I have to belong to him before he goes. Cause he was, he was, you know, leaving soon. And I think I got initiated that I think I got initiated that weekend. Um, but one kind of neat part of that story is that Krishna Chaitanya had, he had read a book, I think it was by Sachinandana Swami about Gayatri. Mm -hmm. And um, we'd always kind of like, some devotees had kind of always described it to us. Like, it's just the thing we do. It's just this, you know, like kind of names like this ritualistic. It's just a piece of the puzzle and you do the things and then you, end up at the end over here at the station 108. So um, I read this book about Gayatri and how powerful it was and using it as a meditation. And he had actually been um, using his Gayatri to pray for me to be inspired. And so anyway, it worked. And, um, <laughs> you know, and, and I got initiated by Guru Maharaj that weekend. And he said, um, Ramaraj looked at me when I went to get mantras from him and he said, it took you long enough because we, we had been going to hear him for, I don't know, 10 years, maybe nine years. And 
I was like, I know. I just like the things that are right in front of my face. I just, I, I can't see them. I can't see them. I really struggle with that. So anyway, that was kind of how I sort of overcame that, um, you know, those challenges of just like not fitting into this, you know, formula of a devotee. And it really, you know, I just wanted to find a teacher, you know, other than Krishna Chaitanya, he wanted a teacher as well, like where we could, it would synthesize all of the things that we knew and that we understand and like put them all in this um, way that we could access. And so lucky for us, you brought Guru Maharaj around and <laughs> eventually, <laughs> eventually we, um, you know, yeah. figured out that yeah. he was that person. So it's a wonderful story. Wow. Yeah. Just uh, that journey of you know, know where you're at and act accordingly. Guru Maharaj quotes that. Well, he says that as a paraphrased Bhaktivinoda Thakur. And, and the, yeah, just really important that if we don't do that, then we become hard-hearted. And that's what you were seeing in some of those devotees that, um, that you were describing in Prabhupada Village, unfortunately, it was that they were so rigid. And that, mm -hmm. that's a word I think really comes to my mind is rigidity. Yeah. And you can't, you know, they, you know, they couldn't be themselves. And so they had to repress their, you know, their natures. And, yeah. and that did make them hard hearted. And then offenses come because then you, you know, look and, and you misjudge situations and people. And um, so really, I think a lot of, I'd say, you know, first generation devotees kind of had to navigate that without really having the good association that we needed of somebody like Guru Maharaj that had you know, gone far enough in his in his spiritual journey to be able to tell us that, you know, this is different than what it looks like. And, this, you know, you, you can do, you can be yourself, you can do this, and you can, you know, make progress by, you know. And it's actually important to be it, yourself. Absolutely, like it, like yeah. you can't You can't really make yeah. progress by not and we saw that 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 yeah. the, that other side that you came from that was the perfect example of what happens when you you aren't yourself and you try to just live something and it and they they misunderstood what they were trying to live too that was the other thing it was it was a very um uninformed bhakti yeah um, it was really good for us i think to see so early on because we were like whoa <laughs> whatever is happening there, I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. And then we're like, but where is what we should be doing? So, yeah. so but we had good association there too. Like Mahara always gave me such good advice, you know, just these little, little nuggets of, you know, of, yeah, like, don't be afraid to be, do these things or, you know, yeah. yeah. She, she was, she was always helpful and encouraging and, and, and eventually you as well. So yeah, we were, we were really, really lucky to, you know, always have these little strings holding, mm -hmm. you know, holding us in. So now that you're such well situated and in your Sangha and you have you know, but I know there was also some messiness in, in that journey as well. Is there anything you'd like to share from that you think would be helpful to, to share and how, you know, looking at the messiness as a necessary part of growth, because just like the whole experience in Prabhupada Village, it was, it really helped you grow. And it, you know, how you just kind of gone along with the program and you could have been just as 
repressed and mean-hearted as the rest of them, you probably wouldn't have gone very far with your bhakti. But um, so, so that that messiness was actually a real blessing to help you come to really embrace a lot of all the parts of yourself and um, and be a much more authentic devotee. So, just anything that you want to share that you know the struggles that, you know, because there's always going to be struggles every step of the way, because that's what helps us upgrade, you know, our, our bhakti are the struggles and, and they're necessary, they're just a necessary piece. Yeah. So, um, I guess, <clears throat> trying to think, I guess my, like, biggest struggles since then um i mean our our service has always been a struggle we've had cows forever and um and that not so much now but you know our that's been sort of a struggle for us um and for me personally, I probably not as much Christian Chaitanya, but it's, um, I don't know, um, on one hand, like, we were always like trying still to find a way for, for us and for our service to fit in. And we tried for, we tried for some time to sell our, sell our house and move to Saragrahi and, and do some sort of, you know, have our cows there. And, but even with that, like there were already, there were cows there. And when we talked about moving there and wanting to move there, it was like, well, there was a place for us, but we don't have enough room for your cows and there's not enough grass. And, um, you know, and that, that was really, that was a really big struggle because we were like, well, we thought we found this place where we fit in. And, and now it seems like still, we don't, you know, still, we don't fit. Um, so, you know, it's like, well, should we move there and just like not live at the land and then still have to, you know, buy a farm somewhere nearby. And so like, the cows have always been like this huge source of, of um, struggle for us. But at the same time, I have to really um, emphasize that the, uh, the amount of struggle that um, has come with serving them, um, there have been just as many blessings um, there what are they, uh, they're proportional. So, you know, and by, and I don't know exactly how to describe the struggle with that. It's like, um, I don't know, it, in a lot of ways, um, I don't know, I feel like Karnamrita always really understood us in that way because he had done, um, such immense long stints of deity service and being the only pujari and so that is um you know for 20 plus years we had cows with milk giving milk which means they have to be milked every single day of 365 days and while it wasn't me always i wasn't doing the milking as much um you know, Krishna Chaitanya was doing it and we were working and going to school and having kids and it, um, you know, sometimes felt like, um, it sometimes felt like we were giving up so much to have them. And then it was, you know, we couldn't find, you know, people weren't like a lot of devotees. I don't think really understood good the amount of sacrifice it took and so there wasn't like always a lot of support um it was just like 
oh, cool, you do that. That's really nice. Um, and I don't know, many times it left me feeling kind of bitter towards devotees, like, um, because it was, it really was so much. And then, um, you know, not always being supported and seeing like big cow programs, getting all kinds of support. And then like, you know, there were times when we ate less so that we could feed the cows, like, and that's not exaggerating, like, you know, so, and, and we didn't often get much support in that way. Cause it was like, oh, well, you're householders and, um, we sold milk. So it was like viewed as a business. And, um, and so that, it, you know, like that's always been a, a personal struggle for me, not as much for Krishna Chaitanya, but at the same time, I have always known, I have always felt from day one, like so, so much protection from the cows. Like as long as we are taking care of these cows, Krishna will not forget us. He, he'll take care of us. He'll make sure that they have what they need. He'll make sure that we have what we need. And they've really like, you know, that's, it's not a struggle anymore. Um, I think mostly because we finally like landed in a place where we have a proper home and they have a proper home and um you know we're not milking anymore and we can just kind of like I don't know it's maybe similar to having grandkids you know like the kids you're just like I'm responsible for them and I have to do everything right and the grandkids you're like oh have some cookies so you know now we just like have fun feeding them carrots and going out and brushing them and laughing at them. And, um, but that, that's still always been like an ongoing struggle for me. And, you know, I don't know if I've described it very well. It's really hard to describe because yeah. it's something that I think people, unless you've been in that situation, yeah, it'd be hard, kind to... of hard to understand. Yeah. Um, so I guess that's, that's my biggest that's been my biggest ongoing struggle is with that service. And um, it's like my own ego, probably like not being, um, I guess, rec like recognized kind of. And it's not even like that. It's just like, I guess people not really understanding what, you know, what that's like and sometimes minimizing it and just not really feeling very supported in it. Um, and there, we have definitely felt super tons of support from, from many devotees, but I don't want to make it sound like we never had any support <laughs> at all. Um, we have, but that's just, that's just my own personal kind of internal struggle. Um, yeah. And, and also just like, not, I also struggle with the amount of kind of like survivor's guilt, I would relate it to like the ridiculous amount of mercy and association that I receive that is definitely not proportional to the amount of effort that I put in. Um, so I, you know, I struggle with that as well, like feeling like an imposter. Um, I, I feel like that a, a lot um, and just, you know, guilt of not, not doing more, not um, having better sadhana, not, you know, just not being a good enough devotee for, um, you know, the, the association that I have is pretty extraordinary, so the effort and the mercy so on one hand some some struggle with all the struggle of taking care of cows all those years and not mm -hmm. feeling so supported but then on the other hand sometimes feeling like just amazing grace and I really so much. effort that I put in with the cows and everything else has been disproportionate to the kind of grace that I've received so Depending on your mood, you can go to either one of those. 
I'm a cancer. I have, um, I think five or six planets in the house of cancer. So, um, Avani tells me my moods are big. <laughs> I don't know if they can, you know, go from one to the other and all over. And yeah, yeah. we all have some, some different parts of ourselves that emerge and can become quite prominent for some time and then dissipate and then another one comes and yeah so that's part of the struggle with the mind it's it's actually we see you know how our minds and and the thing is that we really have a choice we can focus on the grace we can focus on you know the the, the feeling lack of support in any situation so we are actually creating that struggle by choosing the thing that is um yeah making us miserable <laughs> yeah totally well and that's kind of what i've kind of come to that realization that i just try to forget about the i know i don't deserve it i know there's like no reason for me to have that mercy but i've kind of decided like forget about it and just to be greedy for the mercy and not worry about the rest of it. And as long as I'm like always just pointing in that direction and just getting it wherever and however I can, then that's Become a mercy yeah. hound. That's great. Yeah. The rest of it, whatever, I'll figure it out or I won't. <laughs> so we have about three minutes left. Um, gosh, I wish we had more time because I'm sure there's lots of interesting questions but if you could just maybe just share your well something that you'd want to impart to the devotees that are listening to this interview about something that you've learned in this process that you feel might be helpful to them in their journey as a sadhaka just being yourself and not being ashamed to be yourself just be yourself 100 and add whatever little tiny bit of bhakti feels good to you just add it and don't worry about the formulas don't worry about the the numbers don't worry about you know any of it just be yourself and add the bhakti that feels good to you like add those things that that make your heart feel good and I don't I just don't think you can really quite go wrong with that Wonderful. And we do have, I just want to say we have a um, message in the chat from Sakirati, um, our biggest supporter of these interviews. <laughs> Super wonderful interview so far. I have to go, except she has to go, but so do we. Um, but thank you so, so much for sharing your story. I hope to meet you one day soon. So I think that's, that's how we all are feeling from these interviews is Gosh, such a, a wealth of beautiful devotees. And yeah, we've got to have some way to come together at some point, all of us. I really look forward to that. So I would love to keep you on and ask questions and do lots of things, but we've kind of come to the end of our time. Um, thank you, Krishna uh, Chaitanya. <laughs> we're going to have thank Krishna you to him as well. We're going to have him on very soon. I hope that he'll agree to to come on. I don't know what his schedule. If he's got a crazy Thursday schedule as well, so he does. So thank you so much, Bhopal. All right, thank you. I'll see you all in the next class. Yeah, we'll see everybody in the next class. I'm gonna close out this um close out this meeting and everyone can come back on because otherwise i'm going to end up being the host again and they don't probably want that <laughs> Hare krishna Hare Bo. Hare Bo.